Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and we are back. It has been a long time since I uploaded a video, but I moved, I went abroad for a whole month, and I have a lot of content for you guys that I want to share. In this video, we're going to recap my trip to London for the European Powerlifting Conference 2019. All right, welcome back. If you're new to our channel, make sure you hit subscribe so you get updated with all the latest content that we put out. And if you're an OG, thank you for being patient for this latest upload. It's been a work in progress. And again, getting moved and traveling all over the place uh, has not made it easy to do so, but I have a lot of content that I'll be releasing over the next few weeks, including a bunch of training vlogs and I have a meet coming up. So it's gonna be good. Now, what I was originally gonna do is just uh, upload clips from the European Powerlifting Conference um, with some of the speakers and uh, some recaps that I got with them after the conference was over. But for myself, I figured that I could actually do uh, my presentation here in the studio under in a controlled environment compared to in the auditorium where the audio wasn't that great, the lighting wasn't that great. And uh, to be honest, the footage we got from it, uh, Jim Ellie was on the camera. What is up is Jim Ellie, specifically Jordan Feigenbaum's presentation. Uh, pretty cool, but also mostly the rebuttal that Jordan and Mike Israel had uh, in the panel discussion was, was interesting because a lot of times you hear people's opinions about things with no response, no retort, and I thought that actually really helped me think about things that I would otherwise just agree with on face value uh, by hearing someone else's opinion on that subject, and honestly, you just realize that everything's a little bit more nuanced than that. <laughs> it's not bad, it just wasn't complete, and what I'd rather do is try to give you guys uh, my presentation on injury risk and risk reduction in powerlifting. So we'll put my PowerPoint up here and you guys can follow along. All the links uh, to all the studies that I, I cite in here will be in the description below and as well as some other uh, ways that you can keep up with the latest barbell medicine content. So let's start out here. So let's establish our objectives for this presentation. One, we want to define what an injury is. We want to characterize the injury risk in powerlifting, discuss strategies for injury risk reduction, and discuss strategies for injury management. We're going to try to jam this in to about 20 minutes. I had an hour to present at the European Powerlifting conference and there were some questions that kind of ate up some time uh, but if we can jam this into 20 minutes I think that'll be good and then you guys can hear from the rest of the speakers uh, so disclaimers uh, this is not medical advice I am NOT your doctor uh, you should seek professional evaluation and we have a great pain rehab uh, consult service uh, that we offer through barbell medicine so I own that company that's my conflict of interest so the first part we should start with is what is an injury and the very beginning why do these definitions even matter? How you define an injury determines its prevalence, meaning that when you try to study this in the research, if you change the definition, you can actually change the prevalence or how many injuries you see in a population. Uh, so prevalence is a scientific term for the number of active cases present in a population at a given time. So to highlight this, we'll look at a study from Barr et al. They studied 176 volleyball players during the 2001 World Tour, which is an eight-week competition. Um, they used two different definitions to try to compare the prevalence of injuries in this uh, athletic population. So definition one, they used what's called a time loss definition for injury, which was any physical complaint that resulted in time loss from competition or training. Definition number two was based purely on physical symptoms. So any physical complaint of pain sustained by the player during a volleyball match or training, irrespective of the need for medical attention or time loss from volleyball activities or training. So using definition one, which was the time loss definition, 23 injuries were reported in these 176 volleyball players over the eight weeks. The majority were mild and they only missed one to three days. Using definition number two, which was again the physical symptoms, irrespective of time loss or actual need for medical evaluation, there were 54 injuries, so over double the amount of injuries uh, that were reported. However, 98% of women and 100% of men did not miss any playing time meaning that these people had physical complaints. However, they didn't actually need to change their training or their competition schedule. So the real question is, is that an injury? Is that a useful definition? What do we need to actually have criteria-wise for something to be meaningfully called an injury. So to help guide us, I think if we go back into the history of where the word injury even comes from, that might actually help us determine where to go next. Um, the word injury is actually derived from a 14th century Latin word injuria, which breaks down into not 
right. So in meaning not, uh, and then juror meaning uh, right or law, so not right. So the earliest history of this being like written down or recorded probably goes to Homer, a Greek author in the 8th century BC book, The Iliad. Uh, he describes a crash of Eumulos of Corinth during a chariot race, and he says that he has rexus of the skin, which is a discontinuity in the skin. Injuries also described in the book of Genesis in the Bible when Jacob's thigh was out of joint, secondary to wrestling. However, it's interesting that neither then nor seemingly now do we have a unified definition for what an injury actually is, because neither of those texts actually characterize what was being experienced by the individual. And thus the reader is left wanting more details. Was Eumulos in pain uh, after being thrown from his chariot? Uh, was Jacob able to walk it off after his thigh was out of place? Hard to say. And again, we don't know that from either of those, uh, those texts. And so uh, it's just interesting that that's where it came from. We still didn't really have a, a good characterization of what it actually meant to have a quote unquote injury. So really from then until about 2006, we didn't have a unified definition for sports injury. Uh, so enter the first World Congress on Sports Injury, which was held by FIFA in 2006. Basically, they came up with different types of injuries that uh, fell under the umbrella term of sports injury. So there could be a physical complaint injury, which was any physical complaint sustained by a player resulting from a football match or football training, irrespective of the need uh, for medical attention or time loss from football activities. There was also a medical attention injury, which was any physical complaint uh, requiring medical attention, a time loss injury, any physical complaint that uh, resulted in time loss from training and competition, and then a non-fatal catastrophic injury. This was actually added a year later in 2007. This is a brain or spinal cord injury resulting in greater than 12 months of severe functional disability. Um, so this was actually the first kind of consensus on this is uh, what a sports injury is. However, this was just for the sport of soccer, um, and it hasn't been widely adopted in either the research literature or by other sports organizations. And so we still don't have this definition of here's what an injury is, here are the criteria, uh, and that really uh, tends to influence the research. And unfortunately, it makes it harder to analyze and interpret these sorts of things. So we're going to get into it during this uh, uh, presentation and try to make sense of the data as it pertains to powerlifting. So unfortunately, these criteria have not been adopted by either the research or other sports organizations. And on the one hand, it's frustrating because that influences the actual research we have on injury prevalence in certain sports. On the other hand, it's kind of understandable because different sports are likely to have different injury criteria based on the needs of that sport. Uh, so for example, consider a, a gymnast and a figure skater suffer a wrist sprain during training, okay? Does this constitute an injury in both athletes? Uh, probably not. The wrist sprain only limits the gymnast, uh, likely, whereas the same injury probably doesn't affect the figure skater, although it might, and in which case we could call that an injury. Uh, so just having these sort of physical complaints that maybe don't influence um, actual uh, uh, training or competition schedule, it'd be hard to say. And so you might need different criteria for each sport. Um, also, perspective matters, and so it depends who you're asking what constitutes an injury. Are you asking the athlete? Are you asking the clinician um, or the coach? So actually, this study was done by Boiling et al. in 2018, where they interviewed athletes, coaches, and physical therapists on what defines a sport injury. In general, athletes tended to focus on criteria specific to their uh, own context, so a reduction in performance, having to change their planned competition or training, stuff that immediately or directly affected them. Conversely, physical therapists tended to focus on things that they could find on physical exams, so weakness, instability, or pain, but not the uh, change in training plan or competition schedule that seemed to be more meaningful to the actual athlete. So the authors actually concluded that a sports injury should not be viewed as a health condition in itself, but should rather be be viewed as an interaction between physical damage and contextual factors. So one of the hardest things I had to do for this presentation was actually create a definition of injury. Um, we propose a definition for injury that we're currently using in a prospective trial on about 500 individuals participating in powerlifting training. This is uh, headed up by Dr. Michael Ray and they're collecting data right now. So the barbell medicine 
definition for injury is any complaint that causes a reduction in sports performance secondary to training or competition. That's criteria one. Uh, criteria number two is pain or discomfort as rated by the athlete and or objective neurological deficits. Uh, that includes cognitive uh, deficits as well uh, that might occur from like a post-concussive syndrome or something like that uh, that are experienced during or secondary to sports training and or competition. And in addition, any use of over-the-counter or prescribed analgesics uh, to reduce pain or discomfort uh, during training or competitive sport would also uh, fit this criteria. And then finally, criteria number three, training or competition schedule is modified significantly to reflect a change in goals or prioritized outcomes secondary to points one and two. Uh, in this case, the term modified refers to the alteration of a single competition or at least one week's worth of training. For example, a power lifter withdraws from a full power meet due to knee pain and reduced performance in the squat and or deadlift and now focuses on a bench only meet. So that would qualify uh, for the competition schedule being modified. So after these criteria have been set forth, we also uh, wanted to classify sports injuries as uh, and their severity. So what we did is we came up with different uh, sort of uh, time periods um, that uh, reflects the severity of the injury based on our definition. So a minor injury, one to 14 days is the duration, a moderate uh, injury, 15 to 30 days, and a serious injury greater than 30 days. And we picked these words carefully because language matters. Um, other uh, classification systems um, and then in studies where they do actually define how they uh, characterized an injury will say things like severe or catastrophic uh, injuries for things that last longer than 30 days. Uh, and that may actually impair not only the you know, current sort of symptoms that may make it worse uh, and, and it may actually impair the rehab and recovery process. It should be noted that injuries are complex and it may be possible for an athlete to meet points one and three without point two, but this shouldn't necessarily negate uh, classification of a sports injury. That person would still likely qualify um, even if they don't have uh, pain or, or discomfort uh, or an objective neurological deficit, although most of the time they, they likely will. Uh, so one should note that there's uh, no requirement for tissue damage. And the best way to talk about this is actually by using an example. So we'll use delayed onset muscle soreness, which is known as DOMS. Uh, using these criteria, routine delayed onset muscle soreness, or DOMS, would not be considered an injury. While DOMS can produce short-term reduction in performance as well as mild pain or discomfort, it does not typically require substantial prolonged modification of the training or competition schedule unless it is very severe. In that case, when DOMS is very severe, uh, it would qualify as an injury, but your regular soreness would not. One thing you'll notice about our definition of injury is that it's lacking any sort of requirement for tissue damage. And that's because tissue damage doesn't reliably correlate to pain or dysfunction, and so that's why we left it out. Uh, and we'll go through this a little bit further. But before we do that, this is really one of the problems in the FIFA definition that was put forth in 2006. Um, each one of those items, each one of the types of injuries that they proposed, the categories, um, was based around this sort of physical complaint, like it's all biological or it's all tissue damage. But as we'll see, that doesn't seem to be the case. So speaking of tissue damage, one problem with defining injury is that there's no real distinction between disease and injury. Some scientists tend to hold the idea that injury describes damage to the body due to sudden energy changes, whereas a disease makes its presence known over longer periods of time. Uh, but this presents a number of problems with respect to injuries and pain that aren't reliably correlated to tissue damage, such as nonspecific low back pain and some causes of uh, tendinopathy. Tendinopathy being an umbrella term that refers to tendon pain without specifying an underlying pathology. So we're going to make the case that tissue damage is not the same as pain. The biomedical understanding of pain is problematic. It inaccurately endorses a linear relationship between noxious stimuli and pain and is often dualist or reductionist. Uh, from a reductionist perspective, pain is often considered to be in the brain. The biopsychosocial conceptualization of pain suggests biological, psychological, and social factors all being integrated together at the brain, body, and the environmental level, the person's experience of that integration. However, biology does not equal pain on its own. Uh, so let's go through some examples here. So for example, 21 Major League Baseball players received serial shoulder MRIs prior to each season for 10 years. All of the pitchers had some sort of tear or defect observed on MRI. 11 showed a rotator cuff tear, 9 showed an articular surface tear of the supraspinatus tendon, and 2 showed full thickness rotator cuff tears. Interestingly, all of the pitchers were asymptomatic. They had no symptoms. Furthermore, those with 
evidence of a rotator cuff tear pitched over a thousand career innings, whereas those without evidence of a rotator cuff tear pitched less innings, about 729. This is from Lesniak, 2013. The authors actually said there were no statistically significant findings between any single preseason MRI finding and subsequent time on the disabled list. Uh, moving to basketball, the reported prevalence of meniscal and articular cartilage abnormalities based on MRI findings are about 20 and 50 percent in uh, asymptomatic collegiate and professional basketball players, respectively. So collegiate basketball players, about 20% uh, prevalence of meniscal and articular cartilage uh, damage on MRI, whereas professional ball players, it's about 50%. They further reviewed MRIs on both knees of 14 NBA players who, at the time of MRI, demonstrated a normal physical exam, meaning there were no def uh, deficiencies found on clinical exam. They had full range of motion, no joint swelling or tenderness, no ligamentous instability, etc. All the players who had MRIs of their knees had at least one imaging abnormality, only three knees total, 10% of the sample, uh, had no evidence of abnormality. Pappas et al. found a high prevalence of both patellar and quadriceps tendon abnormalities in a review of 24 D1 college basketball players. Uh, specifically, 83% of women and 90% of men showed abnormal patellar tendon findings. Additionally, 75% of women and 90% of men showed abnormal quadriceps tendon findings. And again, I cannot stress this enough, all of these individuals we just talked about with all these imaging abnormalities were asymptomatic at the time of imaging asymptomatic. And so the reasons for this are numerous. Here are two uh, potential uh, ways to understand this. One, the tissue damage, quote unquote, may be adaptive. For example, when researchers compared the thickness of ACL and PCL, which are ligaments in the knee, in high-level weightlifters versus sedentary controls, they found that weightlifters had much larger ACLs and PCLs. On average, weightlifters' ACL were approximately 78% larger than those of their age-matched controls. Further, increasing the cross-sectional area of of those cruciate ligaments, the ACL and the PCL, could represent one way of reducing injury risk based on the current evidence of modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors for a knee injury. Another issue with just trying to connect tissue damage that's diagnosed via imaging is that this may not be reliably diagnosed to begin with. So MRIs, uh, while useful in many cases, are probably not as reliable as the public and some doctors think. So this is one of my favorite studies by Herzog in 2016. They sent the 63-year-old woman with back pain and sciatica to 10 different MRI facilities, each who had a different radiologist uh, who generated a different report. The 10 different radiologists generated 49 different findings in total, 16 of which were unique, and not a single finding was found in all 10 reports. Uh, on average, each radiologist made about a dozen errors, either false positives or false negatives. Uh, again, we hold MRIs up to be this you know, holy grail uh, for diagnosing tissue damage, but it doesn't appear uh, to be as reliable uh, some of the time. And then again, people can have uh, MRI abnormalities and still compete at a very high level. So again, imaging abnormalities might be, you know, an artifact of improper uh, reading or improper interpretation based on the actual uh, radiologist's report, or it may be adaptive, or it might just be a twud, a time wasted on useless detail. It might not mean anything with respect to injury or pain, um, and that kind of comports with our more complex model, the biopsychosocial model uh, for pain that you hear us talk about so much. So the TLDR, it's super hard to define an injury, but how we define an injury actually matters. So again, and it cannot be stated enough that tissue damage does not reliably correlate to pain. You can have observable defects or abnormalities on imaging and that not be tied to pain or dysfunction. And so thinking that everything is just related to the biology or the anatomy, that's very reductionist and we don't want to do that. And so by the same token, pain does not necessarily mean harm. With that in mind, uh, imaging should always be interpreted in the clinical context. In other words, it's not a finding unless it connects in some way to a person's case. Just going in to have an MRI to check things out is likely a bad idea because you can find a host of abnormalities that otherwise wouldn't cause you any sort of issue unless you knew about it. Um, so do you want to know? It depends. The clinical context is important.
So now that we have a better idea of what an injury actually is and the problems with defining injuries uh, and then also tissue damage, let's talk about injury risk in powerlifting. At present, we have about eight studies that look specifically at the injury risk in powerlifting and I've linked them all in the description below. The range of findings is between one to four injuries per thousand participation hours or about one to two injuries per athlete per year. This is similar across all barbell sports such as weightlifting and CrossFit. On the other hand, bodybuilding is slightly lower and strongman and highland games are slightly higher, although admitted there are very few studies looking at strongman and Highland Games athletes injury rates. So while the rate actually seems to be pretty low for powerlifting uh, injuries, the prevalence or number of total cases in a population can actually be high depending on how you define it. So there's a 2018 study by uh, Strombeck et al. They did it on sub-elite uh, Swedish powerlifters. They basically took the people uh, who were just below that elite cutoff based on a Wilkes score uh, and then gave them a survey, asked them about uh, injuries and uh, certain training and lifestyle habits. They found that 90 of 104 responders either had a current injury or an injury in the past 12 months. Uh, while this still works out to be about 3.9 injuries per thousand participation hours, as far as a rate is concerned, the overall prevalence was quite high. However, this prevalence is significantly impacted by the definition that they use. In this study, they, they decided that an injury was defined as a condition of pain or impairment of bodily function that affected a powerlifter's training. For example, 73 individuals reported a current injury, uh, but only 40 actually changed their training by reducing volume or intensity. Conversely, about 12 people decided to increase their emphasis on technique. Seven emphasized their warm-up. Um, does this constitute a meaningful change for those that emphasize their technique uh, or their warm-up? I mean, prob probably not. Maybe the 40 individuals who reported changing their volume or intensity actually had an injury, whereas the other folks, probably not if they didn't actually have to modify their training meaningfully. Another interesting thing is that the symptoms tend to be relatively short-lived. The average duration of injury in this study and the other studies that actually reported duration is less than two weeks. So it's not like you're building towards this catastrophic injury. Um, you know, all this tissue damage has to build up and then boom, you, you blow up and you're out for, for months. It appears to be less than two weeks. So um, again, the injury rate's relatively low uh, and comparable to other non-contact sports. And then the duration of symptoms tends to be relatively low uh, as well. Another problem with the study is that it was retrospective. It asked athletes to recall self-reported injuries over the past year. Uh, recall bias is super common uh, in these types of studies uh, as participants may not remember previous events or experiences accurately and they might omit details. Um, additionally, the accuracy and number of memories recalled may be influenced by the events and the experiences themselves, aka in this case, the injury. Finally, the validity of uh, recalling an injury and retrospective injury studies has been shown to be very low, even when assessed by medical professionals. We prefer to do a prospective study, uh, which is what we're actually doing on our current study. So the question we have is, is powerlifting safe? Uh, it appears to be relatively safe. It's one to four injuries per thousand participation hours, which is similar to other non-contact sports. So for example, a prospective study uh, of injuries in about 300 uh, elite Swedish track and field athletes showed that they had an injury rate uh, of about 3.57 injuries per thousand participation hours. Uh, interestingly, walking and cycling are not purely benign either. Um, walking, for instance, has an injury rate as high as 1.2 injuries per thousand participation hours. Cycling, on the other hand, has an injury rate around two injuries per thousand participation hours. When you compare this to popular sports, contact sports like American football and wrestling, um, American football has got an injury rate of 9.6 injuries per thousand participation hours, and wrestling has an injury rate of 5.7 injuries per thousand participation hours, according to a study by Hootman et al. in 2007. Uh, sports like soccer, rugby, and cricket all have these massively inflated injury rates as well, 15 to 81 injuries per thousand participation hours. So comparatively, powerlifting is pretty safe. So the question then becomes, is it worth the risk? And I think if we turn to Nietzsche and one of the greatest rappers of the early 2000s, DMX, we can get some insight on this. Uh, Nietzsche is a German philosopher and former soccer player, and he's known for this phrase, to live is to suffer, but to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering, which DMX also said in his uh, 1998 hit single, Slippin'. So if you find meaning in the suffering from powerlifting, it's worth it. See, to live is to suffer. But to survive, well... Up next, let's discuss some strategies for injury risk reduction. So intrinsic factors are things like gender, a competitive standard. So are you elite? Are you novice? Uh, body weight, age, 
uh, load lifted. Some of these things are modifiable. Some of these things are non-modifiable. Okay. So we'll talk about gender here first. Where differences were observed, women actually tend to have a slightly lower injury rate in barbell sports compared to men. Uh, 1.3 injuries per lifter per year compared to 2.1 injuries per lifter per year. And this was uh, in two separate studies. Um, higher rate of knee injuries uh, than men, however, which actually uh, comports with other existing data we have on knee injury incidents in women in sports. But that's for a whole nother video because the risk factors there uh, probably are not just related to their gender. Moving on, competitive standard. So two studies actually investigated this. They compared elite level, international level competitors to non-elite or national level weightlifters. Uh, elite lifters actually had a lower injury rate, 3.6 injuries per thousand participation hours versus 5.6 injuries per thousand participation hours for the uh, non-elite weightlifters. Um, another study by Rasky et al. reported 2.6 injuries per thousand participation hours in the elite group and 2.9 injuries uh, per thousand participation hours in the non-elite weightlifting group. So getting more advanced in the sport doesn't appear to confer additional risk. In fact, it may be uh, protective and one of the mechanisms here might be just building up this uh, tolerance to train um, and the adaptive changes in all of the uh, tissues and metabolic systems and uh, the sort of uh, physiology of the lifter to tolerate the type of training needed to perform at that high level. As far as body weight is concerned, there's actually no data on powerlifting or weightlifting uh, and body weight and how it correlates to injury risk. However, uh, there was a single study that was performed on strongman athletes and reported that heavyweight athletes, those who are greater than 231 pounds or 105 kilos, uh, had more injuries than lightweight competitors, those who uh, weighed less than 105 kilos, basically the difference is very small, however, 0.5 injuries per thousand participation hours uh, for the heavyweight lifters uh, compared to 0.3 injuries uh, per thousand participation hours for the lightweight lifters. With respect to age, again, there's no data on powerlifting and weightlifting. There's a study on strongman athletes uh, that reported fewer injuries in athletes over the age of 30 compared to those under the age of 30. But again, this difference is pretty small. So 0.3 uh, injuries in the people uh, over the age of 30 uh, per thousand participation hours compared to 0.5 injuries in those under the age of 30 uh, per thousand participation hours. Uh, with respect to the load being lifted, in powerlifting, Strombeck showed that hitting a personal best was weakly correlated with reporting a current injury and had an odds ratio of 1.02. Now, this is important. An odds ratio is a statistical measure used to determine how strongly two events are correlated to each other. Uh, so an odds ratio of one suggests that two events are independent of one another, whereas a number higher or lower than one suggests a positive or negative correlation respectively. Uh, the further the number is away from one, uh, the stronger the correlation. Importantly, correlation cannot prove causation. So in this case, the odds ratio of 1.02 is extremely small, perhaps meaningless or even artifact uh, increase in risk. So we don't really have data suggesting that increased load in powerlifting increases the risk. And finally, this 2017 meta-analysis by Keo et al., which again, I've linked in the description below, is a meta-analysis on 20 studies on injuries in barbell sports concluded, in general, in Intrinsic factors have relatively little effect on the injury epidemiology of the weight training sports. Uh, moving on to extrinsic factors. So there are some extrinsic factors that don't have any influence. So things like competition rules, training or competitive environment, or any specific equipment actually increase injury risk. We don't have any data suggesting that that exists. That being said, we do have some data suggesting that extrinsic factors like the acute and chronic workload, stress levels, uh, training level, and uh, strength levels all can uh, correlate to injury risk. For instance, acute to chronic workload, the load refers to the internal load. Internal load is the relative physiological and psychological stress imposed by external load. Uh, ergo, the, the volume, intensity, rest periods, the overall work uh, on the individual um, as interpreted through their individual characteristics, their uh, genetics, their previous training status, their expectations, etc. So you have external load, which are you know all the parameters of your training, individual's characteristics, you add them together and you get the internal load. And you can measure this uh, with things like uh, heart rate change uh, or uh, things like RPE of a particular set or session RPE. And overall, internal workloads can be described as a measure of the perception of effort by the athletes themselves. So what's interesting here is that subjective metrics like RPE, session RPE, etc., correlate better with injury risk than external factors like intensity, volume, etc. For example, the acute to chronic workload ratio considers the training load 
load that the athlete has performed relative to the training load that he or she has been prepared for. In practice, this means that the workload assigned to a lifter should not be too much greater than what they are able to currently tolerate. So one way to measure this is to actually compare the current week's training to the previous four weeks of training and just make sure that the uh, increase isn't too great. That being said, it's hard to be confident about using a specific interval here, like should it be this week compared to the previous four weeks, previous three weeks, previous two weeks, probably needs to be adjusted for each sport. It's also hard to be confident in how some of this data actually applies to uh, resistance training since it's still pretty new and we're kind of sussing out the details, uh, even in how to measure it. So the way that we're currently comparing workloads uh, are by using uh, session RPE and the duration of the session in minutes and we're comparing the average uh, weekly values uh, compared to um, the previous four weeks average and just kind of seeing like, hey, what's the ratio between the acute workload to the chronic workload? Um, that's rather complicated. And I think uh, one practical tool that you can take home is to start rating your session RPE. Um, session RPE, again, it's a, a scale going from one to 10, 10 being very, very hard, one being very, very easy. If you note that most of your training sessions are RPE 10, session RPE 10, um, you're laying it all out there, that probably portends a bad outcome. Some sessions may be very, very difficult, but they all shouldn't be maximal all the time. Um, conversely, if they're very, very low, say less than five, that probably means that they're a little too easy um, for your given fitness level. And so therefore may not be um, adding to the uh, sort of training stress that's needed to drive further adaptations. So again, it's important to make sure that the current level of training uh, is uh, reflective of your previous level of training and that you're not going up too quickly too soon because um, that's probably going to lead to a bad outcome. The next extrinsic factor that's meaningful is managing stress. And this is something we talk about all the time. Um, so this is stress from work, school, interpersonal relationships, etc., all part of the individual characteristics that influence the internal load. So again, external load are all the objective values of the uh, training session. Um, and then your individual characteristics sort of interpret that or filter it like an Instagram post uh, and gives you the internal load that's the result um, and so we actually have some decent data uh, here on this so for example a division one study on their collegiate athletes they had a much higher risk of injury when academic stress was high than when it was low despite training and competition schedules being the same during both periods and so one way that you can get around this is by having an auto-regulated program where you're allowing for these day-to-day -day, uh, variations fluctuations or even week-to-week -week variations and fluctuations in your not only readiness to train but also the resources you have for, for adapting to and tolerating that training. Speaking of training, becoming well-trained is a, a great way to reduce your injury risk. And we call this the training injury prevention paradox. This is a, a phenomenon where uh, athletes accustomed to high training loads tend to have fewer injuries than athletes training at a lower workload. This is also known as the workload injury paradox, whereby higher chronic workload is protective against injury uh, when acute workload is similar to that chronic workload. So training more and becoming more uh, well-trained tends to reduce the risk of injury. So gradually increasing the training load over time so you can handle more workload tends to be a good idea to reduce the risk of injury. Uh, there's some evidence for this uh, with respect to higher level lifters actually having a lower injury risk. We talked about that a few minutes ago. And the takeaway here is that when you actually, again, look at the higher level lifters, the elite level lifters, they're actually training at much higher volumes much higher frequencies usually than newer lifters, and yet their injury risk tends to either be the same or lower in these studies that we actually have and cited here. So what you would expect is that since they're participating in more and more training, that they're actually at risk, higher risk for for injuries, but in fact, they're not, and they appear to be, again, sort of able to tolerate this increased level of training due to ratcheting up that workload over time, becoming more well-trained. Probably one of the biggest uh, uh, extrinsic factors that we can actually modify here is getting stronger. Unfortunately, there's no data on powerlifting or barbell sports on actually like, oh, however strong you are correlates to your injury risk. But in other sports, there's clear data here. So for example, a study on 26,000 athletes uh, showed that improving strength uh, reduced sports injuries to less than one-third and overuse injuries could be reduced by half. Another study uh, analyzing injury risk reduction from strength training showed a 10% increase in strength training volume reduced the risk of injury by more than four percentage points. Overall, this probably 
kind of falls or ties into that become well-trained category uh, as getting stronger over time requires uh, more training and therefore the tolerance uh, or being able to tolerate increased training load. One thing we can't leave out when we're talking about uh, barbell sports are accidents. Uh, so for instance, dropping weights on feet are fairly common. Uh, accidents in the weight room are common um, with actual increased risk in younger individuals uh, who presented to the emergency department. Injuries were classified as accidental if it was caused by dropping a weight or improper equipment use. So in a sample of over 4,000 patients, 77% uh, of the injuries seen in the age group 8 to 13 were due to accidental injuries. So again, dropping a weight or improper equipment use, whereas 27.5% uh, of all uh, weight room related injuries uh, were accidental in the age group 22 to 30. So still significant, watch your toes, don't drop weights on your toes if you can avoid that. In addition to accidents, uh, catastrophic injuries do happen, but they're relatively rare. And so you look at case reports to kind of uh, see like, hey, what sort of things are happening? Is there any way to reduce the risk from these catastrophic injuries? Uh, and I don't think so outside of like safety practices in the gym. So for example, there's one study that reported a clavicle fracture that occurred during the bench press. Somebody broke their collarbone during the bench press. Uh, another case report where a guy had a simultaneous rotator cuff and biceps uh, tendon tear during strongman competition. Uh, I'm not sure that there's anything that you can do to reduce the risk there, okay? Uh, fortunately, fatal accidents in the weight room are relatively rare. So again, only a handful of case reports here. Uh, the first report I found uh, was a nine-year-old boy had a 23 kilo barbell fall on his chest from the uprights on a bench support in the home. So I assume that there was a bench uh, press uh, in the home and there was an oddly specific yet non-standardized 23 kilo barbell just resting on the uprights. In any event, this bar came down, landed on their uh, the kid's chest and tore a hole in his right atrium. Uh, did not survive that, unfortunately. Uh, the second report, a uh, weightlifter who was using anabolic steroids experienced sudden cardiac death, although the sudden cardiac death might have been due to uh, uh, an arrhythmia um, due to a, a congenital defect in a certain ion channel, which can happen too. Overall, I'm not sure that we can actually reduce the risk of these types of events. So the last part of my presentation was on uh, injury management. And I think that is best saved for another time because it's a pretty expansive topic. I'm already running long uh, to begin with. And I think that uh, we have some more concise uh, and accessible and easily digestible uh, resources that I've linked in the description below. There's a great video with Dr. Baraki and a handful of our different articles that I think uh, would be useful uh, to plug in here. So overall, that was my presentation at the 2019 European Powerlifting Conference. Uh, it sounds much better in here than it does in the auditorium. So hopefully you guys enjoyed. And now let's hear from some of the other presenters at the conference. Let's figure out how many calories you want to eat. You have to figure out which macros, what macros you want to prioritize, uh, plan out in order to fulfill those calorie needs. Now, generally speaking, we like to start with protein first. It's sort of the easiest to plan out. It's most effective at maintaining lean muscle mass. Carbohydrates are really essential for performance, even though there's some research out there talking about fat-adapted athletes and keto being really effective for athletes. Being fat-adapted makes you maladapted for burning carbohydrates. And increased exercise intensity increases our reliance on carbohydrates. So if you are becoming fat-adapted, that just means that you're not going to be as good at exercising intensely. And that's not good if you're actually competitive. So if you're fat-adapted, you can go for a really long time, slowly, which is no race ever and no competition ever. Well, except powerlifting, you can just lift as slowly as you want, but it takes like 30 seconds still. Um, so uh, we want to prioritize carbohydrates and then sort of fill the rest with fats. So we know that protein can have a significant impact on body composition, um, especially for cutting. Uh, sufficient protein helps to maintain lean body mass. Carbohydrates, in addition to supporting performance, help to prevent fatigue. We know that our ability, our work capacity is directly related to our stored glycogen levels. They also spare protein, so they allow that protein to be used for uh, uh, skeletal muscle protein synthesis rather than being broken down for energy. Fats are also important. They help to support hormone production. They make food taste good. And uh, both uh, uh, their essential fatty acids and also essential amino acids. So we do have to get those from the diet. So there are, there are low uh, safe limits for all of these nutrients. Now, carbohydrates, we can technically take down to zero because we can make our own glucose via gluconeogenesis, but that's really not effective for performance. Let's
doing? My name is Eric Helms. I am here at the EPC. I am a research fellow at the Auckland University of Technology, uh, Strength and Conditioning PhD, and also one of the co-founders and the chief science officer of 3D Muscle Journey. I talked about sticking regions in the power lifts today, what causes them, uh, how we should maybe think about them, and just realizing that we're going to have them regardless, and what are the evidence-based strategies that we could use uh, to address them. Okay, now, in serious, in serious note, I'm going to be presenting on that sticky, icky, icky, put it in the air, as Darwin put it. <laughs> Sticking points, what do we know? Um, what, what are they? How do we define them? What do they mean? And should we be doing anything about them? Who here is aware of the, the eternal battle between specificity and, and, and variation in, in, in the world of powerlifting? West Side versus Shaiko versus the Bulgarian system, versus, I don't know, me versus my teams. We clearly hate each other and do very different types of training. And how dare you do a board press? You're a raw lifter. Don't you know it's 2019 hashtag science? It's a vicious, vicious war ground, isn't it? So uh, this continuum from an outsider's perspective, if you're, if you're new to powerlifting, kind of all looks the same. You guys are just doing variations on bench press, squat, and deadlift, and that's kind of silly. Um, but a lot of it is also driven by tradition. Who's ever heard of Louis Simmons? Did someone boo? Yes, I you Louis get Simmons. out! Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, and this is something that uh, is present in all things that, that humans do: is we do things because other people do things, and then we feel it's appropriate to do those things because we want to be accepted, and because smart people say we do it, or you're a good lifter, or you're a good coach. Uh, we inherit a lot of ideas without actually knowing the idea behind the idea. We just kind of replicate things like. What I see is we go through phases in powerlifting of, of movements we consider good accessories for X, Y, and Z. Like, the real reason everyone was doing pause deadlifts around the knee for a while, because, not for any reason I get it, because Shaiko, right? Or we did pause squats for a while, not because, oh, we need more strength out of the hole, but most of the time because Paul Carter said so, right? It depends on what area you're in. We did reverse hypers because there you go, right? So there are rationales, and these people did develop these for reasons, but the individuals who you might be seeing doing them, or the people implementing them, often the reason has no more depth than I heard this was a good accessory movement to do. So I want to take us a little bit beyond that. I want to explore the continuum of accessory movements as they relate to sticking points. And to do that, we have to have an understanding of what sticking points are, if they matter, and what actually makes sense from a scientific biomechanical perspective to do about it. So a cool aspect of my talk that I, I addressed is the common practice where you'll see pauses in powerlifting. Something that you'll see in various types of programming, let's say a deadlift with a pause at the knees. Uh, this is often done in powerlifting for the purpose of trying to get stronger at a position where you're weak. But if you think about it, if you are weak in a certain sticking region, do you actually want to be training yourself to produce less force by stopping there? Probably not. However, if you make a technical fault just off the floor into the knee where the bar drifts away, a very common thing, it might make sense to have a pause or to train a partial range of motion to actually chunk the movement for motor learning. So that is a, probably a better approach and a better use of this method rather than thinking, oh, this is a sticking region, I should actually pause there. What's the MMA fighter? Uh, uh, no, no, the no notorious MMA, the... the Conor yeah, yeah, actually, you're like a jack version of Conor. So many times. Yeah, yeah. It's like if Conor McGregor like lifted weights and like was strong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is Brett Gibbs, IPF world champion, multi-time IPF world champion, big bencher, bencher. Uh, he was talking to me the other day about wide grip versus close grip, a bench press for a competition. Yeah. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's always the usual. <laughs> 
because you had that in the back of your mind, so I went to close grip for a while, and I got really, really strong at close grip, and going out wide, I just felt weird, and it wasn't as strong. Right. So I trained like that for a, for a long, long time, so arms are pretty much vertical, right? And um, it eventually got to the point where it was super, super hard to make progress. Like, I got around to around 190 to 195, which is obviously still a great bench press, and I was making, I obviously made improvement from around, you know, one, I put about 20 kilo on, say, for instance. But I just couldn't get, past that point essentially and I knew that you know if you look at most of the, the biggest benches they're not super close they're not going to start with their arms vertical or even two fingers outside of that it's going to be at least on the ring and wider right right so I knew that going out wider is going to have a higher strength potential and if I continue to train um, over you know the next two or three years even if I take a hit now like 10 kilos now and I can go out a bit wider um, it's going to result in, in a bigger bench essentially and what's your, and what's your bench now and which is exactly what happened so the biggest bench I've actually done now is 200 and 20 kilos. I mean, I have. I reckon I would have zero chance of um, being able to do that um, with, with the close grip. And I also think that it, um, it can. It can definitely. Uh, so there's obviously the recovery aspects, the variety, um, so the transference of, of exercise that you're going to have with, you know, with close grip being your competition um, pressing movement. So to get transference on secondary lifts. You know what are those exercises going to be? Um, sure. Essentially, um, so you, you get a, a lot more variety and you get a lot more volume in when you're sort of somewhere in that sweet middle uh, middle range. Just in my opinion, obviously, but you know. Hey guys, Dr. Mike Isertel from Renaissance Periodization. Our high-rich foods are often the tastiest foods in the world. Favorite foods, go. We'll sort of one at a time. What's your favorite food? Who that? What's your favorite food? Cookies. Those have carbs. Does anyone have a favorite food that does not have carbs? Let's hear it, hipsters. Say bacon. <laughs> hipsters gone. <laughs> have we done it? Are there no more hipsters? Is bacon not a bad food anymore? Do you guys remember 2009, where like you put bacon in everything, and it was cool to eat bacon, like you were a rebel? Like stormtroopers would walk by and you cover up your bacon in your restaurant and then they're like, yeah, he's not here, and they walk off and they eat bacon. No? Anyone? Right. Not all the jokes are funny, people. Sometimes we laugh and they might feel good. So. In any case, pretty much all tasty foods have carbs, some of them a lot of carbs. So when somebody's restricting the carbohydrate intake, because they have, like many of us, an issue with overeating foods that are super tasty, if you cut out carbs, I don't know if you guys have ever tried this, Cheating is real hard to do, right? Someone's like, all right, your coach is like, all right, you get a cheat meal, anything you want, but you can't have a carb. You're like, okay. You're like at home cutting up bacon, putting olive oil on it, and crying while eating it, right? And you look outside, and the, the carb people are walking around with their you know dogs made of ice cream cones. You're like, I want carbs. So if you lower your carbs, you can potentially control your appetite pretty well and not be exposed to this super, super seductive tastiness. But if you raise your carbohydrates and you sort of have trouble getting the right kind of foods, which we'll get into, it can be tough. It can be tough, which is why a lot of folks come to you and they say, hey, I don't eat a whole lot of carbs, I'm a power lifter, I want you to help me with my nutrition. They're like, ooh, can we eat more carbs? Like, no, 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 no. When I eat carbs, I blow up. And they could, there's some validity to that, right? There's validity to that in the short term, when they blow off from just eating more carbs uh, in acute sense so over a couple of days, and also long term, because they just keep eating pizza and breadsticks, wherever the hell else carbs are made of. Those are the downsides of carbs. They're downsides, right? But of course, that's not the whole picture. There are upsides of carbs, so let's take a look at those and see if we can get a little bit more clear. On the plus side, carbohydrates, when you eat them, tend to cause insulin secretion to some extent, and insulin probably helps with muscle growth. It definitely helps with muscle growth because it is anti-catabolic in a huge way. Insulin is wildly anti-catabolic and prevents muscle loss considerably. 
If you look at that one famous meta-analysis and forest plot they have there, uh, it actually does have a significant but mild anabolic effect. Other all those studies were not done in people who actually lift weights or people who consume carbs all the time, and that probably has even bigger metabolic effects. If you look at the number of people that have ever gotten enormous eating no carbs or low carbs, the list is precisely zero people. And the largest people in the world eat inordinate amount of, amount of carbohydrate, and that's probably not by accident. So if you eat carbohydrates, you probably grow more muscle, which is a good thing, which is what we want. So that's good. Carbs probably grow muscle in other ways. The muscle pump has been implicated in probably at least in part directly causing hypertrophy by cell swelling. So if you get really good pumps, you probably grow at least a little bit more muscle. It's not just the tension, although it's an important component. So if you eat more carbs, you get bigger pumps. You guys ever not eating carbs for a while? You eat carbs, and you go to the gym, and you're like, I'm made of veins and anger and self-hatred. I'm just kidding, I know that has to do with carbs. I just have a lot of them. So <laughs> when you eat carbs, you get bigger pumps. And then when you get bigger pumps, you probably grow more muscle. That's a really good thing. There is a mechanism in muscle cells by which your cell detects how much glycogen you are storing. And if you are storing lots of it, it sort of gives the all clear muscle growth pathways good to go. If you're storing very little glycogen, uh, your body is less inclined to let you grow muscle. It's not a one or zero relationship. It's not either or. It's probably a sort of scaling relationship where if your glycogen is mostly or fully loaded, you are really, really potentiating hypertrophy and getting good muscle growth. If you are significantly at a loss of glycogen, muscle growth is much harder. Right, so if you chronically under-eat carbohydrates and you uh, get into more uh, occasional times where glycogen is not really highly stored, you're missing out on muscle growth. Totally. Uh, the take-home tip is you don't need to go crazy and get super in-depth on the numbers, but like as long as you're eating enough carbohydrates to support your training and you don't feel like you're super deprived of glycogen, if you feel like you're getting decent pumps in the gym and you feel like your energy levels are good, then you are probably getting enough carbs, and if you want to push the carb level past that, there's probably not a ton of advantage. So there's a lot of preference there. Just don't go super crazy low on the carbs and eat enough fats and protein. You can have tons of carbs and be super successful and your best, and then people will love you and you'll finally have happiness. <laughs> it's Mike Isertel from Renaissance Periodization. Hey, I'm Mike Tushir with Reactive Training Systems. So, what volume is the answer, but probably more importantly, what the heck is the question? If you, asking the right question is important. If you want to know if an object will sink or float, you need to ask about the density of that object, not the object's weight. That would be important if you want to know Maybe, for example, um, the recovery plan of a certain lifting intervention, then you would want to know how much stress that's imparting on the organism, not necessarily how much volume it is. I suppose that's where I can, that's where I can start here. Oh, I'm going back. So. Great. I see why you guys messed this up all, all week. I get that. So, I would say that's kind of a, the question that I started out with is what is it that I'm trying to understand when we talk about volume? Is volume telling me, is volume answering the question that's bouncing around in my head? And the question is something about how difficult is this protocol, both how difficult is it to complete and how difficult will it be to recover from in the sense of returning to a normal ability to uh, execute the next workout. And recovery is one of these difficult things to define, so I think we, from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, we kind of know what recovery feels like, and I'm gonna leave it at that for now, and I think we could get into maybe a rigorous definition of, of what that's all about, but I'd rather focus on some other things. I think volume is pretty obviously insufficient to answer that question, and I have some examples here. If you imagine that you have a 1RM of 100 kilos, uh, and we give you two different protocols. One is three sets of 12 reps at 60 kilos, so that's going to be basically three 12RMs. Uh, you accumulate 2100 kilos of volume, versus three sets of three reps at 90 kilos, three 3RM three sets, is um, 
you know, a little bit more than a third of the volume. What about, what impact do those two workouts have? Does three sets of three RM demand about a third of the resources? Um, no, it doesn't seem right. Conversely, what if we tried to equate for volume in, the, in terms of tonnage here? Uh, you could say three sets of 12 reps, again, three 12-RM sets. How many 3-RM sets would you need to do to get an equal amount of volume? Well, you'd have to do eight 3-RM sets. And, I mean, if you imagine going to the gym and squatting three 12-RM sets versus eight 3-RM sets, it doesn't seem like an equal amount of work. It doesn't seem like this is telling me what I want to know about the difficulty, the, the, the resource demand of the training that I'm doing. And, and this is really important because one of everyone's favorite questions to ask is, how many sets and reps should I do? So it, I think it turns out that the answer of uh, how much stress is a, a given protocol imparting on, on a lifter it turns out to be pretty important information to answering that question. You could also count number of hard sets. Uh, on Greg's website, there was an article. Uh, I think I'm falsely attributing this to Greg, but that's okay. Um, in Greg's article on the hypertrophy rep range, he talks about counting number of hard sets. And I think, I remember when I read that, I was like, man, that's, that's good. That might get at this, right? The, and, and it does in a large part. If you take our two protocols again, three sets of uh, 12 reps, three 12 RM sets, well that's three working sets, three hard sets, versus three three RM sets, that's also three hard sets. It, it makes a bit more sense that those are similar, similar demands on resources, energy, during the session and, and after the session. I don't mean that to say energy in terms of caloric expenditure. I'm talking about energy in terms of cognitive, emotional energy. How long does it take you to feel normal again after that session? Uh, how long does it take the, the soreness to go away? How long does it take any sort of joint stiffness to go away? And it seems like number of hard sets gets closer to that. But then we don't always do uh, 10 RPE sets. We don't, we don't always take every set to failure. So what about three singles at 90 kilos? Those will be singles at a, a seven and a half, eight RPE, somewhere in there. Uh, how do those compare to three three-arm sets? What about three doubles at 85 kilos or, or 12 singles at 80 kilos? How do any of those things compare here? Um, in, in particular, singles at 80 kilos. If your 1RM is 100 kilos, a single at 80 is going to be quite easy. Uh, should that count as zero? That doesn't seem right. Uh, so what fraction of, of a hard set should that count as? Well, I started asking myself, where do I, where do I think from a, from a practitioner standpoint that stress from training comes from. And what I came up with is that it comes from primarily from muscle damage or, or tissue damage more largely, I suppose, but uh, some sort of uh, physiological change as a result of the, the training stimulus and psychological fatigue. Rather than trying to spend a lot of time calculating tonnage and all that stuff, uh, focus more on number of hard sets, something like that. And just keep in mind that easy sets don't count as zero, uh, but you know, hard sets definitely count as more than that. All right, thank you so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I apologize for the delay, but we are back. Hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with all the latest content. Leave us a comment below. Hit the thumbs up if you're into that sort of thing. We'll see you guys next time. Later. I just want to talk about your calves That's, for a second. No, I don't like pictures. They steal your soul. It's not a picture. It's a video. It's better. Every frame steals a piece of your soul. So here's some here's some not knowledge but wisdom. There's two parts of your body that it's socially acceptable to regularly display. 
That's your forearms and calves. So regardless of what your other training goals are, if you aren't training your forearms and calves, like honestly, what's the point? <laughs> You're always on display. Yeah. And you always train. Yeah. Because, you know. I, mean, I do try to time it, but yeah, I mean, what are you gonna do? Not, not <laughs> The question is, how do you say Trafalgar Square? Trafalgar Square. Trafalgar Square? Trafalgar. 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 Yeah? I think so. Lanil? Yeah. Alright, well that's where we're at. Trafalgar Square. Californian. Californian. <laughs> we're here at Trafalgar Square. <laughs> you apparently you're telling me this is a big fan. Over there, yeah. Look, guys. Came all the way to London. It had nothing to do with this conference. I wanted to see Big Ben again, but for real, I'll take a picture of it. And it's under lock and key. I guess I just gotta come back again. But uh, yeah, so this is Big Ben. You're not missing anything today, maybe next year. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done.